Hello, and welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Understanding Podcast. Today we have Sensei Elliston with us today and Kate and Tina and Marla. Rob and Craig. Glad you could all make it. We're going to be talking about the first verse chapter of the Tao Te Ching. We submitted some questions to Sensei last week, and we're so happy you're here, sir. Thank you for coming today. I'm happy I'm here too. (laughs) And I, I loved your approach to this that we can see the differences between. Um, Taoism and Zen Buddhism, and how they how, how they complement each other, and what's there because I'm looking forward to learning. So thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, this one in particular seems an awful lot of sameness, a lot of sameness between Zen and Taoism. Uh, of course, Dao, uh, Zen trans, transmitted through China, and it picked up traits of Confucianism and Taoism along the way. That's what we wanted to talk about. Do we, maybe you've got a little clearer understanding uh, on what was the origin or how, uh, what was first, the chicken or the egg? You know, which was it? Well, I'm pretty sure, you know, Confucianism started about the time Buddhism started. And uh, I think they call that the Axial Age because so much was going on everywhere. And then it was uh, some uh, a thousand years later, approximately, that Bodhidharma went to China. So he, he, he arrived in China from India somewhere around 500 or four, 400s, late 400s. And uh, so that was when <laughs> Buddhism became Zen. Uh, they say uh, chop wood, carry water was uh, the practical side that uh, was picked up in China. And there was, you know, the historicity is very complex and they were said to be uh, a true Zen uh, Chinese monk in China before Bodhidharma. But he is credited credited with bringing this direct practice of Soto Zen or, or Zen through meditation not through scholarly teachings, but through through direct practice and a face to face relationship with it with a teacher to uh, to China, and so Bodhidharma is credited with being the first ancestor of Zen in China, even though he's Indian. But I'm not much of a scholar or historian, so <laughs> and our, our cop out in Zen is we base it on our own experience, which is what he's emphasizing here in the introduction that. Uh, Apparently, the Tao Te Ching, which is much older than our uh, written teachings in Buddhism, they were about 400 years after Buddha. So they they showed up around 100 BC, probably the first written versions. But as he makes the point, uh, who knows who changed them and how and why and, and when. So we, we think the transmission for the first four centuries or so of, of Buddhism, similar to Christianity, 
was a more coherent trans uh, transmission because you couldn't you couldn't change them. You had to go chant them with people who had memorized them. And uh, if there's a group of a hundred monks chanting, monks and nuns and so on, you can't you can't change that. You just have to learn it and and so forth. So anyway, uh, it was interesting to hear the translator's comments here about the complexity of the historicity of it and the complexity of translating a really geometric or pictorial language, language like Chinese into an algebraic or linear language like English. Very difficult, very limited choices. Yeah, now you're... I like what he does in the commentary where he shows all the choices. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about the Jonathan Starr book, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is really, really good. On the uh, he does he goes into real detail on the first one. Are we uh, are we reading this book instead? Well, we're looking at all of them, so oh, okay. we'll, just, we'll just look at all what we can get yeah. done in an hour. We'll do uh, the first you've thing gotta, I would like to do if we I, could. You've got to help me with this. I have to read one or the other. <laughs> okay. Well, well, let's do this. Let's. Um, Let's read, uh, and we'll let Kate, if we would. Do you have the the side-by-sides uh, up, Kate? Uh, I can share it here. And I'll get you to read these for us first, just to give us a foundation. Which? Uh, and it's, uh, I'm going to share the screen, so it would be these four. If, Kate, if you can read those for us, please, just so we can have a little bit of a background. Have you, are you unmuted here? Oh, sorry. I forgot to unmute. Yeah, if you can just read those for us to give us a, a base, and then we'll just talk about them and go from there. And let Sensei expound. Would you Would you do that? Kate? Yeah. Okay. First translation. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of the 10,000 things. Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one sees the manifestations. These two spring from the same source but differ in name. This appears as darkness. Darkness within darkness. The gate to all mystery. Second translation. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness the gateway to all understanding. Third translation, the Tao that can be described is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be spoken is not the eternal name. The nameless is the boundary of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of creation. Freed from desire, you can see the hidden mystery. By having desire, you can only see what is visibly real. Yet mystery and reality emerge from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness born from darkness, the beginning of all understanding. Final translation. If you can talk about it, it ain't Tao. If it has a name, it's just another thing. 
Dow doesn't have a name. Names are for ordinary things. Stop wanting stuff. It keeps you from seeing what's real. When you want stuff, all you see are things. Those two sentences mean the same thing. Figure them out and you've got it made. All right. And I've got that link in the chat. Okay. So we've we've got that there. And what we've done in the past and say is we've used those four as the foundation and then we'd talk about the others and just go through it and see what spoke to us if when you say those four, you mean four translations? Yes, sir. Those four translations. Um, and there's and a then, fifth. There's a fifth one that sounds much more contemporary. The last one. Right, right. The Hogan, the Hogan translation. Hogan. Is that the one, Ron Hogan? I don't. I don't really know. It doesn't show the name, but okay. That sounds like a very contemporary. I'm familiar. I think I'm most familiar with the second translation. Yeah, that's the Stephen Mitchell. Do you know much about Stephen Mitchell? Have you? Uh, uh, no, I, but I, I think I read his translation of the Tao uh, some time ago, but I can't remember what the book was called either. But I, I see an awful lot of strong parallels, but I thought where I would start is maybe just try to answer the questions. Sure. Yes, sir. Are you recording? Yes, you are. Yes, sir. Uh, in answering the questions, I may from time to time be able to draw some parallels. Sure. Uh, so... Those that know do not talk, this must come later, when talking about the Tao, any advice about stopping the ego from taking over the conversation uh, from Paul? And um, we have this problem in uh, every online dialogue. There's some etiquette has been developed around just not interrupting, uh, allowing the facilitator to call you out and, and so forth. Uh, we live in such an opinionated society now that it seems everybody feels like they have to have an opinion and they have to assert their opinion. Um, this is very anti-Zen as an attitude and very anti-Dao, really. I have uh, I was trained in a focus group. I think I may have mentioned this last time, research for new product development, consumer end-user consumer research. And there's a technique developed by Carl Rogers about how do you conduct such an interview of a focus group or an individual without biasing the response. And so the interviewer cannot really have an opinion. So uh, with some of my, many of my students who have difficulties either at work, at home, or difficulties resolving sort of the political paradoxes we're dealing with now, and they get into arguments, uh, I send them this three-page synopsis of, I, I'll certainly send it to you if you're interested in it. Just send me an email. It gives you a way of talking to people, which some people are natural at, empathic. It took me about three years to learn it. But it's based on not asking why questions, not asking challenging questions that call for defense, but asking questions more along the lines of what makes you feel that way about that, you know. So it's a... Uh, he developed in World War II, Carl Rogers, it's called Rogerian uh, technique, to interview uh, resistant draftees. And uh, we don't have the draft anymore, but in those days they were very uncooperative. So it establishes rapport. So um, those that know do not talk, and those that talk do not know, is uh, sometimes uh, used as a admonition. But 
as Katagiri Roshi said, one taught in one of his books is you have to say something. Right? Uh, if, if we don't proselytize, and I'm sure Taoists do not either, people consider themselves Taoists. And once again, we don't, in Zen, we don't consider ourselves Buddhist. We say Buddha was not a Buddhist. We're just point, looking at and trying to realize the same thing he realized about reality. And when he started teaching that, then later on, he was called Buddha, the fully awakened one, because it was about waking up completely. What he was teaching was called Buddhism, and his followers were called Buddhists. But there is no such thing as Buddhism, you know, from our perspective. So similar to Taoism, saying that which is eternally real is nameless. Naming is the source of all particular things. So if you name Buddhism, it's just another name for, for, for something. So uh, the ego, sometimes uh, some of the arguments that people get into these days, they hear somebody really distorting the Dharma. And one argument is that most Zen people are pretty liberal and uh, progressively skewed, and, and including myself. But we don't represent Zen as being that. Uh, and we also don't represent Zen as being conservatively skewed either, and so forth. We, it's the middle way. And so when you hear people giving what are called Dharma talks, and what you actually hear is kind of a political screed, one way or the other, that's offensive if you understand Buddha Dharma as not really endorsing that view or that view. It's more, um, it's more apolitical, I guess you'd have to say, than that. So sometimes people get upset one way or the other about that. But if you, if you confront that head on, uh, the anger that you feel may be justified. Anger is not always ego. And here we're worrying about ego driving my wanting to take over the conversation. Um, but sometimes you're trying to defend something that's precious to you and important. Like the children running the free street, mom is angry because the children could be hurt, killed, and they're precious to her, so she reacts in anger. And that's an altruistic, defensive action or, or feeling. So first we want to disabuse the idea that anger is always bad. Uh, Matsuoka Roshi said, Thinking or feeling an angry thought or feeling anger is like cutting water with a knife. The blade closes behind it, leaves no trace. Speaking out of anger is like cutting sand. It takes a long time for the wind to smooth it over. But acting out of anger is like cutting stone. It takes forever for the scar to wear away. So in Buddhism or Zen, at least, we don't try to avoid feeling anger. We don't interpret it as always being ego. But we do try to uh, keep ourselves from speaking impulsively or acting impulsively out of anger because of the effect that it has. And the effect it has is not the effect you want, <laughs> typically you want. Anger can be used to have a certain effect. And uh, Zen masters were known for their shock tactics. They'd whack you with a staff or they'd yell at you or kick you down the stairs or slam the door on you or something, uh, which looks like anger but it's called grandmotherly kindness. They're just trying to help you wake up. So did that answer that question, Paul? Um, Paul was not able to be here, but he okay. said he's going to listen for the answer okay. when he when he hears the podcast. So, so the, the advice would be along the lines of count to 10 or something. 
but uh, we we would suggest your uh, implanting the idea in your own head that when you feel anger, it's because you want to defend something. And so the next place for you to go is what is it I'm trying to defend? Am I trying to defend myself? And that, so that's ego or or am I trying to defend a principle that's worth fighting for of some kind, whatever it is, justice, injustice, you know, all kinds of levels there. So if you can take a backward step before simply reacting in rage, and this is where we think meditation helps, it gives us a little bit of a leg up emotionally where we don't overreact, instantly react to everything. Then you can figure out in the situation if you're trying to defend something. And one, one of the techniques that I've seen used um, in consulting where, say, a client in a board meeting says something really stupid about what we're talking about, really sort of ignorant. And this, old, this uh, older guy I used to travel with, he'd say, now be careful, be careful. Because when you do that, this is how it affects your customer. So he would deflect... And part of, part of the Rogerian technique is called deflection. When you get in a pinch, he would deflect the conversation, not be my opinion versus yours, but let's triangulate this and let's talk about what effect this has on that third party we're trying to affect. So if you try to take over the conversation and you're trying to have an influence on the group having the conversation, then you can consider to yourself, what am I trying to defend and what kind of effect is this going to have on the, these people I'm trying to affect? There's a lot of stuff around argument. You know, a lot of it is just, if you, if you engage in the argument, you've already lost. And that's a little bit simplistic and abrupt. But it's not an easy question that Paul was asking. No, no, it's not. Um, does anyone have any comments for Sensei on that or any any further for uh, following up on, on that first question? If you do, just Paul, just unmute yourself and I'll call on you. Yeah, just raise your hand. Yeah. yeah. So the second one is related. I may as well cover that. If those who sure. talk don't know, how do we grasp the Tao? Is it really about not talking? Now, uh, all opinions are not equal in, in Zen or Taoism. Uh, expression and experience are the two sort of parallel tracks. Um, we emphasize experience over expression, as I'm sure Taoist masters do as well. So if you have a very experienced person, you may find that they're the least likely to insist upon their opinion, for one thing. They'll tend to be Quiet. They know the conversation has to come around to them eventually. And so it's not that they don't talk. It's just that they don't, they put experience before expression. And uh, if they express something, they're going to express it out of their own experience. It's not going to be what I read, what you read, and we are, we're arguing these talking points that we've gotten from somewhere. So it's a very good question because... As Katagiri said, you, you have to say something. If people come to you sincerely looking for understanding of Zen, you, you are obligated to try. And 
unless we live together, like a Zen master and, and the disciples and stuff in a monastery, you have to take advantage of every opportunity that you're having a conversation. That's why I tend to talk too much. I'm trying to get too much across. Uh, and I don't put myself on the level of a, a Zen master. We, we don't master Zen, it masters us. But uh, I do have a lot of experience. Uh, it's not really about not talking because that presumes that everybody gets the same message from the silence. And uh, we practice silence, of course, stillness, silence, a lot of meditation. But then that is interrupted, like interval training, with, with dialogue. And so the student has the chance to check their grasp, you know, against the Sangha, other members of the community, the teachers, and so forth. We have, we have more than one teacher. I'm the guiding teacher. But And then you go back to the cushion. And that's where you get your, your solid, concrete answers. But the dialogue, we see it as, as supporting that, coaching, like coaching an athlete. Uh, if the athlete's not willing to do the work, no amount of coaching is going to help. But ultimately, the athlete has to do the work. Uh, the coach tries to help them not make mistakes and so forth. So it's not really about not talking. I mean, every great teacher in the history, I wouldn't say every one of them, but they were talkers. <laughs> Look at Buddha. I mean, just my, <laughs> if what's attributed to him, he really taught. He that would our Dogen. You know, it's a lot. It's just a lot. Our Lao Tzu. Since I do have a follow up to that, we were talking before you came in about a little bit about meditation, and Kate was talking about. Uh, Kate, share with Sensei your experience with starting to do the uh, uh, the audio that he had on the website, if you would, please. Oh, okay. Sitting with Sensei? Yeah, so I started doing the beginning one, um, but I had a hard time with sitting still with it. And, you know, I'm kind of, I just found myself to be kind of twitchy, and, yep. you know, I couldn't hold the posture. I mean, I might have been able to hold the posture. I just didn't. I just, my mind kind of said, oh, stop doing this. Yep, yep. It's not easy, but I don't think it's necessary to sit still. Um, there are some schools that do. They're very strict. But what they're trying to do is impose discipline upon you. And in Zen, the only real discipline is self-discipline. And my teacher's admonition was just, don't ever get, don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep going back. The kind of stillness that we enter into in meditation is very profound. Uh, but, you know, Buddha moved. I guarantee you Buddha moved. Uh, and there's a, there's a famous old saying, Mokarai. Um, it means stillness in motion, motion in stillness. So as we sit and we become relatively more still, we actually begin to experience more motion on a different level. So if you sit with fixed gaze, for instance, your eyes are more still than usual. You're not tracking everything with your eyes, and they tend to jump around and sasad, S-A-C-C-A-D-E-S, seven times a second. You know, there is motion everywhere. It's all, it's all movement. So you impose kind of a relative stillness. Now, Buddha taught that the mind imposes a false stillness on our reality. 
is kind of like brain science. That everything we're actually experiencing is a reconstruction. And we're in a sense kind of holding everything still. It's a survival thing so you can tell if something is charging you or running away from you. So in, in terms of perception, we're kind of holding it still to begin with. So when you impose this intentional stillness by sitting still, keeping your gaze fixed, you start to push that envelope. So people start to see light, color, movement in their vision. They start to hear high tones, low tones, different sounds in their audio, audible, audio spectrum. They start to feel different sensations in the body that you don't ordinarily feel. And if you start just feeling pain, resistance in your body, we just suggest you go with it for a while because it's the body adapting to the posture, stretching uh, tendons and so on. Hard tissue is stretching out. Uh, so let yourself sink into a, a beyond your comfort level uh, because all, all, all is happening is the body stretching. And then uncross your legs, cross them the other way, or change your, put your feet on the floor, sit on a chair, whatever you have to do, but to continue sitting upright. And the upright is important because we, we find the sweet spot in line with gravity. That's, we come into alignment with gravity, and that's where sort of the magic sets in. The posture becomes effortless, and we become in equilibrium or equipoise. So it's not a matter of forcing yourself to sit stock still. Very difficult. There are some, as I said, some disciplines that uh, do that, and you get you go through an awful lot of pain. But most people do get through the pain. But unfortunately, for most, a lot of people, it could be very discouraging. You think I'm never going to, you know, get through this. So we recommend you take the Zen should be the comfortable way. Meditation should be comfortable. It should be comfortable physically. And it's going to take you some time to get there. <laughs> Like doing any kind of a workout, you know, to, it takes repetition. And once you become physically comfortable with it, you might start falling asleep. You might have emotional issues come up, so you might not be so comfortable on other levels. Or your husband or wife may not like the fact that you're doing so much meditation. So you may have a social level of discomfort. But, but at some point, you have to become completely comfortable with the meditation and the amount of time you're, you have, you're devoting to it and so forth. And if you're not, uh, don't do it. So sometimes uh, people say they're really having difficulty sitting still. And I said, don't, don't sit still. Have you ever seen davening at a synagogue? You go to a bar mitzvah and they're doing the Torah and the men are wrapped up in cloths and stuff and ropes. And they're, they're sort of, sort of bouncing from the waist forward and back. So most of the centers, temples you go to, Eheiji, Sojiji, and uh, Japan, when you take their beginner's introduction, when you first sit down, they say rock. Rock left and right, walk forward and back. And I hope I'd include that in the instruction. But what I'm telling you is that it would be fine for you to just sort of sit there and bounce through the full half hour or however long you're planning to sit, 20 minutes, whatever it is. But when you're doing that, it, it relieves the sort of fidgeting and stress and the physical stress. But there comes a point at which you realize that you're bouncing and moving slightly, you know, maybe just a little bit, but you can then stop. And so you can enter into deeper and deeper levels of stillness, physically as well as emotionally, mentally. And so they're called samadhi. Samadhi is the jargon term for that, where it becomes centered, centered and balanced. 
it's like aerobics or anything else. You have to take it at your own pace. Kate, I do have a question. Are you sitting on a mat or are you sitting in a chair? How I'm sitting on a couch on a Zafu. The Zafu is a round cushion. It gives me the height that I like. <laughs> if I sit in the couch, you kind of sag down in the couch, and I, I don't like that. So if you sit on a chair in meditation, you don't want to lean against the back. You want to sort of perch on toward the front of the chair and keep your back and neck and head straight. That's the most important part of the posture. So that the nervous system, the spine and the, and the, uh, the uh, spinal column and the nervous system come into alignment with gravity. Yeah, I was sitting in a chair. That's fine. As try, long as you, I could try sitting on the floor. Uh, it's not critical. It's, it's actually more stable because your cross-legged posture makes like a triangular base. And if, once people get flexible enough, they prefer it because of its solidity. Sitting in a chair is fine. Just put your feet solidly on the floor and arch the small of your back. Don't lean, don't lean back on the chair and make on the back of the chair. Make sure your knees are below your hips. If your knees are raised up, they're pushing you back. Let's kind of think about it. it's like sitting on a beach on the sand. The sand has a slope. And this supports your body, and you just sit there comfortably and look at the ocean. should be like that. Uh, the posture should be more like a stretch, mm-hmm. stretching comfortably than making muscular laborious effort. And the breath should be more like a sigh, just a deep, a deep sigh of relief as you're breathing. It's not physically relaxing. It's very rigorous, but it becomes mental and emotionally relaxing. So what does it mean to be free from desire? You could say, well, it sounds like I'm talking about I desire to be free from stress and so forth by doing meditation, right? But I think what they mean by what does it mean to be free from desire? uh, Matsuoka Roshi used to say, the desire that brought you to the temple today is a good desire. So like most things, you can divide desire into those that further. This is a sort of a eking, eking uh, phrasing. They say, cast the euro stocks, and this hexagram says this furthers, this does not further. So you could think of that in general as kind of furthering your cause, or this is working against you. Um, some desires that are built in to our uh, animal uh, body. Uh, all desires are, are in, in uh, repentance in uh, Buddhism or Zen. We say, all my past and harmful karma, born from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, uh, through body, mouth, and mind, I now fully avow, or I recognize, fess up to uh, everything we've done in the past that we may regret and that we're living the consequences of. So it's just, a, it's just a confession, repentance, and generalized, right? But it says born of body, mouth, and mind, which means it's built in. Hunger, sexual desires, uh, drug addictions, all kinds of, any kind of addiction. Um, the, the lust for power, for, for greed, for wealth, all of these things are, are seen to be driven by our physical existence in that sense they're not our fault. But what we do about it is our responsibility. And so many of these, many of these desires are ex- exacerbated by mental fantasies, right? And often when we get what we think we want, 
it's not so hot. We don't want it <laughs> anymore. <laughs> once we get, once we get it, we don't want it. So I think it means to be free from desire in that sense, but not to be free from the desire to be liberated or to be awake or to to wake up or to have spiritual insight. Those kind of desires are seen to be what motivates birth um, in a more positive sense, motivates existence. Does that make sense to sort of bifurcate that? It's impossible to be free from all desire. Your body is the source of most desire. And But if uh, this, uh, now this next line, ever desireless one can see the mystery. Did somebody raise their hand? I didn't. No. Uh, sorry, I already forgot what I was going to ask you. Go ahead. Okay, so the next one is connected, where the translation I was familiar with said, uh, caught by desire, caught by desire, one sees the manifestations. Freed from desire, one confronts the mystery. So it's a little backwards to this one, but saying the same thing. So if you're forever caught up in endless desires, uh, once you get that new automobile, uh, it's going to be worn out. It's going to be old in five years. You're going to want a new one. Uh, Craving, it's called craving. When you crave something and you find that you really like it, then it leads to clinging. Uh, if you don't like it, it leads to aversion, which is another form of craving, to, to avoid unpleasant, to pursue the pleasant. If you could possibly get f- free of all of that, as long as you're not, it says you are seeing only the manifestation. Now, this is a little bit like what we call form or appearance in Buddhism. You're seeing only the form or appearance of existence. You're not penetrating to the emptiness or the essence of existence. And a lot of the terminology in this chapter are pretty much, I think, synonymous with those kind of terms. But if you could ever finally get free of this cycle of redundant and sort of circular desire that seems to lead only to its own gratification and then you want more, and you want more, you want, maybe you have too much, you're sat, you're sated, and you have too much of that, you want something else, you want something different, like, I don't want this marriage anymore, I want to marry, have a better marriage, and so forth. Uh, Even if you become completely free, what you then confront is the mystery. In other words, the, the answer to the question in Taoism or Zen is not an answer, it's a deeper question. And they say this in science, they say the great, the difference between a world-class scientist and a mediocre scientist is the world-class scientist asks the, the bigger questions. So I think that's the way you want to think about it. It's almost that you have to go through this, run the gauntlet of getting through the craving and desire and recognize this is the human condition. You're not alone. Everybody's facing the same thing. And you'll never be rid of it because it's born of body, mouth, and mind. It's built in. You, you will never be rid of it. But you can learn to live with it. And you can learn to not give in to it. 
is the theory, all theory, right? Hopefully, put it into practice. Hopefully, and it say it's holding out the carrot. You know that if if you can, if this happens, then your reward is you now see the mystery, and you can interpret that as agape, awe, uh, wonder, childlike, uh, refreshing of consciousness, returning to your childhood or your, the, the mystery of existence itself. So you can see it as a great reward because you've gotten rid of all the, I think I know everything. You've gotten rid of all of that and you just have this huge thing open up. It's called don't know mind in Zen. The don't know mind is highly, highly revered. So I think those, those are connected, those three and four there. So Marla, did you have something I didn't mean to override? No, you know, when you said all desire is in, is in the body, I just had to, I thought about it for a second. I, I wondered what you meant, and then I answered my own question, yeah. I think. I'm not sure all desire is, I mean, a lot of it is, uh, well, for instance, they say Elon Musk wants to die on Mars. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> I always wanted to go into space. You know, what kind of, what kind of desire is that? Um, so... We can have these very fanciful, imaginative desires as well, right? That's what human beings are capable of. You could desire world peace. And then the question would be, how do we get there? (laughs) Maybe the idea is not to get caught in those desires. Well, you certainly can recognize your habitual ones, the ones that are born of body, mouth, and mind, keep coming around and around and around. Fortunately, a lot of them are hormonally driven, they're time of life driven. As you age, you phase out of some of them that may have been disastrous for you as they were for me. <laughs> so, so do you want me to go to the next two, five and six? Please, sir. Unless there's other questions. Are there any other questions? Yeah. Okay. So darkness within darkness, the gate to all mystery. I was thinking in order to be found by you must be lost. Oh, I was thinking in order to be found, you must be lost. Yeah. I think darkness within darkness refers to something like, there are many of these formulations in the history of Zen, like uh, Rinzai, Lin, Lin Chi or Rinzai, was said to have constructed a model for the sake of his students, and he talked about, the guest and the host. And he would talk about the guest without the host and the host without the guest and so forth. And uh, the last thing is the host within the host. The the last line of uh, one of the poems, I think it's Precious Mir Samadhi, says something like, and this sounds like Taoism or uh, Confucianism, the ministers serve their lords, children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial. Failure to serve is no help. Sounds very Confucian, right? Then he goes on to say, um, with practice hidden, function secretly, like a fool, like an idiot. Just to continue in this way is called the host within the host. So functioning like a fool or an idiot, idiot didn't have the connotation that it has now. Idiot means somebody who's out of the mainstream of society 
And so you could legitimately say that some of our politicians are idiots and you're not, you're not, it's not a pejorative. You're just saying they're, they're, they're disconnected from reality. But then uh, with practice hidden, function secretly like a fool, like an idiot. So if you're a minister serving a Lord, you don't have to make a big deal of your practice. If you're a child, you're serving your parents, or parents serving your child, you don't have to make a big deal of your practice. It's not something layered on top or ex extraordinary or, or special. Function secretly like a fool, like an idiot. It's a secret that you have. It's your secret is this practice that you have, no matter where you find yourself stationed in life. Just to continue in this way is called the host within the host. So it's the most intimate. It's the inner circle. It's the darkness within the darkness. Now, Buddha was said to have taught that reality is like a marvelous projection. Now, think of that. They didn't have movies. They didn't have television. Uh, they had shadow puppets, probably. But he had some sort of direct experience that made all of this seem like it's a projection of some sort. Like what's in front of your eyes right now is like floating against the blackness of outer space. We know that, right? If you took it away, took everything away, including the planet and, and so forth, you'd see as far away as the moon and the stars and the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth. And Buddha teaches this in the Shurangama Sutra. So if you think of that like that, then what you're seeing is kind of a projection. And you're only seeing this side of it. Master Dogen said, when you see forms or appearance, when you see forms and hear sounds, fully engaging body and mind, you grasp things directly, unlike things and their reflection in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illumined, the other side is dark. Now, if you think of things reflected in a mirror, both sides are illumined, or you couldn't see the reflection. This room is light lit, and there's a mirror on the wall, and I can see the room reflected in the mirror. Both sides are illumined. The moon is, is, is lit in the sky and its reflection is bright in the water. Both sides are illumined. But when you take that away, it's un unlike things in their reflection in the mirror. This is kind of, it's called, uh, in one of the poems it says, uh, the precious mirror samadhi, it says, like a precious mirror, like facing a precious mirror, form and reflection behold each other. So if you think it like that, form is what we experience, appearance, that's the form. Emptiness is its essence. But uh, form and reflection behold each other. So your property of consciousness is the reflection of the mirror. You are reflecting on this, you might say. You're reflecting this. And the brain scientists tell us it's actually a reconstruction in our, in our mind. But underlaying this has to be the dark, right? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, not an accident, but it's a coincidence that we're on the sunlit side of the earth now. When the earth rotates, then we'll be on the dark side. So behind this is, uh, and this is part of the reality, but behind it is the, the further reality that we don't see. It's dark. Uh, I see the tree in the, in, the, in the yard. I see only this side of the tree. I can't see the other side of the tree. If I go out in the street and look at the other side of the tree, I'll see that side. I can't see this side. But I also cannot see the inside of the tree. Inside of the tree where it lives, it's dark. It doesn't see. It doesn't see me. It doesn't even see itself as a tree. So this is the mystery, I think, that Taoism is pointing at. It's somehow 
it's alive, it's conscious, and so forth. But like flowers, I wrote a high poem about flowers. Flower, flowers all blossom, unaware of their beauty, and uncomplaining. <laughs> the flower itself does not see itself, does not see its beauty. So to it, it's coming from the dark side. We see it from this side, so we see it lit by the sunlight or, or whatever. So I think that's the darkness within darkness, the gate to all mystery. And yeah, you find yourself when you when you wake up to this. And very much I think this verse is asking us to have faith because we can't know this stuff in any sure in any way that we can, you know, be sure of. And this is why the the really long Chinese poem Xinxing Ming means faith in mind. Faith in mind with Kaplan. Have faith in your original mind. A couple of the quotes were from that poem. Or trust, trust in mind. Marlo, does that answer your question about having, uh, is this uh, verse asking us to have faith? Yes, that did answer it, yeah. Good. Um, it's a little hard these days to have faith. but yeah, It's encouraging us. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions, guys, for Sensei on this uh, first chapter? Thank you, sir. That was good. Thank you. Uh, Craig, you have anything, or Rob? I'm admittedly. I'm sorry. Just I'm admittedly blown away by this stuff. It's <laughs> still new to me. Darkness and darkness. I'm not going to lie. I'm. It's hard to wrap my head around this, and I think I've said before. I have to start with the concept that whatever I I came into this meeting or this life thinking, if I just flip it to the opposite, I'm going to probably be closer to the answer. Yep. You know, I used to get my happiness from getting my next toy or my next job or my next, et cetera. And uh, you think life experience would have told me. Um, this darkness within darkness under a gateway to understanding. Well, your doubt, I, in, in Zen we say keep your doubt at a keen edge. If, if you feel a lot of doubt about your understanding and about the teaching itself, then you're close to the truth. That's where you want to be. So the way we look at it is faith is really not the absence of doubt. Faith is like courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. If you have a high threshold for fear and can still act, then it said you have courage. You're, you're courageous. If you have a high threshold for doubt and you can still move forward, then you're exercising great faith. So you're in a good spot. Hmm. Well, I'll take that. Thanks. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, Rob. <laughs> there's a there's a, a part of one of the Chinese poems, which I recommend you all read. And, uh, buddy, if you remind me and just send me a note, I will send you back my lead sheet musical settings of the three ch main Chinese poems that we study. One is two pages long in, in the, in the, in the uh, form that in the chant book. One is one page long and one is three pages long. So, and they were like from 600, 700, and 800 of common era. And one line in there says, uh, in the light there is darkness, but do not take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but do not see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. So if you think about it, um, the front 
is always becoming the back foot and the back foot is always becoming the front foot in walking, right? There's never a time when the front is the front foot and the back is the back foot unless you just stop and hold them there. And so it's ever, ever like yin and yang, it's, it's revolving. So that's what he's saying about lightness. In the light there is darkness and do not take it as darkness. In the dark there is light but do not see it as light. He's talking about direct sensory experience. It also has a conceptual or philosophical meaning that in your meditation, you start blacking out visually. You start seeing into the, seeing light in the darkness. And you can explain it and say it's just the uh, electricity on on your neural circuitry that you're seeing, right? So all of these uh, Zen poems, and I think a lot of Taoism, is pointing at direct experience. They're not talking symbolically and conceptually. They may borrow symbols that are familiar to the culture, but they use those to point at reality. And the only truth or reality that's important in Taoism or Buddhism is experiential. So we want to take these pretty literally in that sense, I think. You know, since say we in recovery, we we focus on our experience when we help someone else we help them from our experience not yep. from what we yep. learn or what we're right. taught so it fits right in with i think that's why i was so attracted to this path yeah it's not doctrinal in the sense that you're trying to learn all the doctrine and try to it's more like interval training where you where you do meditation and then you read about it and you do meditation you read about it so it's like using an application on a computer if if you don't use the application, the backup documentation doesn't make any sense. But if you're using the application, then what the, the literature that you read about Buddha Dharma can what, every once in a while trigger an aha or eureka kind of experience. Oh, that's what that is. Or talking with somebody who has experience uh, theoretically can help. So Zen teachers are like the techies, online techies. <laughs> <laughs> Helping you find workarounds for your glitches. <laughs> That's it. Uh, <laughs> Tina, do you have anything? Or Craig, I think we've heard from everyone else. You guys good? Okay. Call them out. Call them out. Don't be shy. I I just wanted to thank you for, for being here and for sharing your wisdom. Um, that's the greatest gift I think somebody can give is their time and thoughts. Um, so I really appreciate that. And I, I, I like Rob, it's, it's all still floating around in there, but I'm just feel like I'm in the right spot because I'm near somebody that, that kind of understands just as I feel about all of, all of you guys, you know, I mean, you all have stuff inside you that I'm just appreciate being by. Check it out in your own meditation, your own experience. That's where it will solidify. And uh, really, I think the dialogue, the questions and answers and so forth, if they're causing confusion, I think that's healthy. Good. So we should come up with questions on verse two next week for next week? Or for next month. Or for next month. Yeah. And let's do this. Let's use the Wayne Dyer book. And I've got the PDF I can send you guys. I think I can come up with. Yeah, let's use this, Sensei, instead of reading all of the, uh, doing the, the other way we did because it's in one chapter after one verse after another. And so next week would next month would be uh, page eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 
and we could we could use that okay. and use his translation there. And, and then I, we also have his commentary. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I always use the uh, Jonathan Starr just as research for me to, if I need a little more, if I wanted a little more understanding of what that means, I use the... the well, I was uh, reading his commentary on the first verse, which is the only one I think he did an extensive commentary on. I'll finish reading that, and then what I will do is read both his translation and this translation. Did you see in the uh, on in the middle of the book there where you can kind of make up your own translation, yep. Jonathan? Yep. That was interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I really like that because I can come closer to making it sound like I want it to make what I want it to say. You know? I like to claim ownership of all these ideas, and but then I find out I didn't come up with it. But I had thought at one time I told people I said if you took the Heart Sutra, for instance, out of Buddhism. It's, a, it's supposed to be like a Reader's Digest conversion of all of Buddha's teachings. And so any one sort of phrase in there, if it had an underline, it would be a link. You click on it to bring up a whole other sutra. And I was thinking, uh, if you took the translation, if you took the English words and you just stacked all the English words, as he does here, he goes horizontal, but if you stacked all the English words that are possible to translate, then you could kind of weave your own way through your own translation by taking the third one here and the second one there and the fourth one there, the ones that you like best, and you could put together your own. And setting it to music, I, I changed it myself. I, for instance, it says form is uh, emptiness, emptiness is form, and it says something like form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. I put in the word innately because form is innately emptiness. doesn't put them on the sides of an equation. It's more like this is already this, you know, kind of thing. So I think all of us, uh, you know, are free to, to undergo that exercise and see if we can, as he says in the introduction, find your own meaning in it by weaving together your own ver <laughs> version of what you think it says. And I want to mention before we close, I have linked, I'll have links in the uh, episode notes for the podcast. Uh, for for your meditation teaching and how they can uh, support the Zen Center as well, so I have all of that in the um, in the notes for the episode. So much appreciated. Uh, we appreciate uh, you coming today. Thank you. Oh, very thank much you for, so much. I hope when we get open again sometime, you guys can all come to visit the center in Atlanta. No, we're going to move in, buddy. We're just coming to buddies and we're on to hang out, and then we'll come. We'll set up a satellite. Sounds Come good. on down. <laughs> guys, guys, thank you for is there any other questions or comments before we close? Everyone good? Okay. Well, thank you very much, guys. Y'all have a great day. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.